Well, good evening and welcome to our midweek Bible study here at the Lost River Church of Christ. We are in the middle of a study of the Ten Commandments. Actually, last week was our first time. And if you missed that lesson, we'd encourage you to go back and watch part one. Uh, and tonight we're going to look at part two, the second of the Ten Commandments. A little bit of review. The first commandment prohibited the worship of false gods. And essentially in that, God was saying to put me first. That's what God requires of all of us, that there be no other gods before Him, that He's our number one and first priority in life. And there's nothing more important than that we worship God and that we worship Him as He actually is. Which brings us to the second commandment, which we're going to look at tonight, which prohibits changing God into an image that suits us. So, so worship the true and the living God only, and worship Him as He actually is, not as we wish Him to be. So we must accept God for who He is. Worship me as I actually am. Accept me for who I am. You know, it's interesting because you hear people say that expression a lot these days. Uh, accept me for who I am, not try to make me into something that I'm not. And given what we mean by that, it's a good sentiment. But when it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes we want to tell Him, God, you've got to accept me as I am. In other words, somebody in this relationship has to change. God, you're who you are. I am who I am. And in order for us to meet in the middle, in order for us to have a, a good and ongoing relationship, somebody's got to change. And too often we want to say, well, God, you're the one that's going to have to change. I want you to accept me on my terms. But what God is telling us here in this commandment is, no, it's the other way around. I want you to accept me for who I am. We need to change ourselves and align ourselves with the nature and character of the unchanging and perfect God. You know, that's really good news, because if you're honest, you know that there's things about you that aren't right. All of us, because of sin in our lives, are, are broken and in need of repair. We are in need of redemption. We are in need of repentance, of salvation, of change. And because God is perfect and unchanging, the challenge is for us to resist the tendency to want to make God into our image and in our likeness or to morph Him into something that's a little bit more palatable or suitable to me in my sinful state. That's the perennial temptation of mankind. But this commandment prohibits us from doing that. And instead, God tells us, no, I'm not going to change. What needs to happen is you need to change to conform yourself to me and to my ways. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And here's the way it reads in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You know, we look at that word image. We, we use imagination, don't we? we? We think about things. We imagine something. And really, that's where idolatry begins, is in the imagination, in the heart of human beings. We, we think about how we would like God to be, what we think He ought to be. And then we go about crafting something in the image that we desire. Or we see something around us and we think, you know, that, that's, that's a suitable uh, image for God. And so we, we, we turn it into or we shape or mold something 
we craft for ourselves something that we think reflects appropriately the likeness and image of God. And that's the essence of idolatry. And so he forbids us to do this. Don't make an image in the form of anything. And then he, he mentions three realms, I guess, in which we often draw inspiration for our idolatrous images. He says, don't make anything in, uh, of an image that you are inspired by out of what you see in the heavens above you. That would include the, the stars and the planets. You know, there's been the worship of stars and planets for as long as, as men have been around. Um, the worship of Mars is traditionally associated with the worship of, of warfare and Venus as the goddess of, of love. And so there are these astral or astronomical bodies that are often used as inspiration for uh, people to imagine what their God could be. And they craft something according to the likeness of that. Or maybe it's a little closer to home, like the sun or the moon or the stars or the earth around us. We look at the animals and the creation around us and people turn those things into objects of worship or the waters below. So the sea creatures and the strange and eerie and awesome things that swim in the waters below can inspire people to craft an image and make it the object of their worship. But God says not to do any of that. As we think about some of these, uh, we realize that the reason for it is that nothing within creation can fully represent the God of creation. We talked about that a little bit last week, but I want to review it because it's so important. The God who created the heavens and the earth cannot properly be identified by anything within the heavens and the earth that he created. And as much as the person who builds a house is greater than the house itself, I mean, his fingerprints are left on the house, if you will. It's an indication of the skill of the builder. But we know that the builder is much greater than the thing that he has built. And so it is with God, the creator and architect of the universe. There's his, his, it is his handiwork. It is an indication of who he is. But it's a mistake for us to begin to identify the work of his hands with the workman himself. And so God... Um, Solomon got this when he, when he built the temple and at the dedication of the temple, he, he realized there would be a, a tendency for people to sort of identify the temple as the place that housed God and maybe God lived inside of it in some way that they could put him in a box. But Solomon in his prayer to God at the dedication said, you know, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you how much less this temple that I have built. And so Solomon got this. He, he realized that they were building something that represented the dwelling place of God among men. But Solomon knew that God himself was actually far greater than anything that men could build to, to represent him or even to house him. And so I want us to understand uh, one thing that people sometimes mistake as they consider this commandment. It's not a prohibit, uh, prohibition against art in general. Uh, some people, um, Muslims, many uh, variations of Muslims uh, will, will take this point of view that, that no art whatsoever is allowed. And if you visit some of their uh, homes, sometimes you'll see that there's absolutely no paintings, no sculptures of any kind allowed in their dwellings. 
some, some strong uh, Jewish followers take that point of view as well. But when you look at the New Testament or the Old Testament, actually, you see that God was never prohibiting art because the uh, temple itself was filled with artistic figures of angelic beings, the, the cherubim, for instance. Think about the Ark of the Covenant, a magnificent piece of artwork, and uh, these cherubim that were on the top of it. But the thing to notice is that while there were many artistic representations within the tabernacle and the temple, none of them were representations of God himself. And so we're not prohibited to make art or even religious art, but we are prohibited from making an image of God himself and then using that image as the means by which we connect with the divine. That's the essence of the idolatry that is being prohibited here. And we know throughout human history and continuing down to today that that's a very common impulse for humans to give way to. Uh, I think this is a view of the sun god from the Indian uh, culture. Here's one from the Aztecs as they worship the sun god. And of course, uh, Ra, the, the sun god of the Egyptians, that the Israelites to whom Moses uh, and God spoke the Ten Commandments would have been very familiar. And I don't know what all of the various parts of Ra's uh, picture here are intended to indicate. There's like a falcon-shaped head and then above him this sun with some kind of a cobra or serpent wrapped around it. All of those intended to indicate something. But this was the artistic deification or, or representation of the deity that they associated with the sun. And this is the kind of thing that very specifically God is for, forbidding Israel to participate in. They are not to worship uh, an image of God in this way, or to be inspired by something like the sun, as, uh, that which is within God's creation, as an emblem uh, to associate with God himself. So uh, we are uh, able to see that prohibition. Another thing that we see right off the bat is that Israel failed to live up to the requirement in this commandment. In fact, while Moses was on the mountain receiving these commandments, we know that Israel was down at the base of the mountain violating these commandments. And the way that they did it, as you'll recall, is they built a golden calf. And it's really interesting because when Aaron made this golden calf out of the golden earrings and jewelry the people had contributed to, to build it, he, he revealed it or unveiled it to the people and he said, to, to behold the God who brought you out of Egypt. And so Aaron wasn't there describing a new God. He wasn't violating the first commandment, no other gods. He says, this is the God who brought us out of, out of Egypt. But he was trying to define that God in terms of something within creation, a bull, a golden calf. Now, this is a common um, object of worship that people would, would make in the ancient world. And it's maybe not too hard for us to understand why they would do that. A, a bull is powerful, strong, uh, fertile. Uh, and those are things that people often associate with God. But a bull is not nearly powerful enough to represent the God who created the heaven and the earth. And he also lacks intelligence. He lacks restraint. And the interesting thing is that later the psalmist would tell us that people become like the gods they worship 
And that's exactly what we see taking place in this story. When the children of Israel represent God as a bull, the next thing that they do is throw this big festival and uh, have an orgy, as it were, at the, uh, at the foot of the mountain in reverence and in worship to their newly cast uh, image of God. And so as we degrade our image and thought about who God is, our behavior and our character are corrupted and downgraded as well. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 23, he describes idolatrous humanity this way. He says, they exchange, taking one thing and replacing it with another, exchange the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like mortal humans, uh, mortal human beings and, and birds and animals and reptiles. So exchange the immortal and spiritual and eternal and unchanging God for something that we can relate to perhaps a little bit more easily. A bull, uh, the image of the sun, it gives life, it's powerful, it gives heat, it gives light. And so we begin to say, you know, that's God, or at least we can connect with God through this image. But every time we do that, we're actually corrupting our, our view of who God is. And we're exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God with something within creation that is easily corrupted and is by its nature corruptible. So God prohibits this and he tells us that we're not to bow down to these images or idols and we're not to worship them. This is an interesting connection here, and I've highlighted these words for a reason. Bow down is, is what we often think of when we think of, of, of worship. We, we, we see people doing this, and we, we are told that uh, we, we're to do this. We're to bow down before God, our Maker, our Creator, and, and to worship Him. And so that's one form of worship. And we do this you know, when we sing praises, and when we give praise, and we, we bow down and, and honor the God who gives us life and who brings our redemption. And we're not to do that within, with regard to anything within creation. Only God is to receive that sort of homage and reverence. But the other word worship, in some translations, your Bible may say serve. And this is the idea of going out and living your life in terms of loyalty to this being or this person. Don't make yourself an idol and then, you know, like a young bull, and then go out and live your life in terms of or in obedience to this idol that you've created. Because again, your character and your behavior will be downgraded in terms of the idol that you've made. So God tells us not to do these things. And then he gives us this reason, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's an interesting way of describing it, isn't it? In fact, uh, Oprah Winfrey, I remember uh, seeing an interview with her one time in which she said that she lost her faith in the biblical God in her late 20s while listening to a preacher make reference to this very passage. He was describing various qualities and attributes of God, and then he mentioned that God is a jealous God. And she said she felt like something wasn't right with that. It, it didn't feel right in her spirit, I think was, was her term, because she saw God as a loving God. And she couldn't uh, make a, a compatible connection between God who's loving and a God who's jealous. 
But the passage isn't saying that God is like jealous of us, but he's jealous for us. He's jealous for our affection. And the reality is that his jealousy for our loyalty and devotion and affection is not at all contradictory to his nature of a loving God. And here's why that's the case. Our lives are going to be built on or leaned on that which we recognize as our God, that which we think is most worthy of our trust. We're going to lean on the most. We're going to put our hopes, our dreams. We're going to form our character. Our lives are going to be built on the things that we think matter the most. And if we're doing that on some idol, something within creation, something less than the unchangeable and perfect God who alone has the strength to hold us up and to give us purpose, to give us meaning and value and, and life itself for eternity. If we're leaning on something else, we're leaning on something that is ultimately going to fail us, something that's going to collapse under the weight of our life. And so if we make an idol out of our family, out of money, out of fame and glory and success, out of any number of other things that people lean and build their lives on, eventually those things are going to fail us. So God is jealous for our affections, that we would devote and focus ourselves entirely on Him and build our lives on Him because He knows He's the only thing that can endure forever. He's the only thing that a soul that's going to live forever can find great enough to, to, to give us everlasting joy and meaning and significance. All of our idols will eventually betray us. And so because God loves us, He's jealous for our affections. He doesn't want us to corrupt ourselves by giving what alone belongs to Him and alone He can give us to some created thing that will fail us in the end. So you see, it's not incompatible that God would be jealous and loving. In fact, in God, those two things must go together. Our values, our affections should be ordered according to the things that are most valuable. And if God is the most perfect and valuable thing that exists, and He is, then He should be number one in our life, and we should lean upon Him and nothing else. So He tells us to do this because he's a jealous God, and that's good for us. And then he adds something that you may find a bit disturbing. But he says that he is the God who punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Let's start here with the word hate. God's telling us here that to turn away from him to serve an idol something that we have desired, decided, decided that we want God to be or that we're exchanging God for. If we turn away from Him for that, he, he looks upon that as a hatred of Him. It's a rejection of Him for something else. And when we do that and we corrupt ourselves as a result, we bring not only a, a curse, not only do we, do we bring uh, sorrow, not only do we bring corruption upon ourselves, but we create an environment for our children that they're going to be dealing with for generations to come. Now, he's not saying here that a child who grows up in a household whose family worships an idol 
has no choice to turn from that idol to God. Obviously, people do that all the time. But what he is saying is that when the parents turn from him to something that is corrupt, something that is less than God and make it their object of worship and their own culture and their own character is downgraded as a result, their children are going to live in the, the climate and the culture that the parents establish. And that's going to make it very hard and difficult for those children. It's going to create patterns of behavior and cultural norms that are damaging and corrupt for that child to live in. In other words, put it this way, the gods we worship determine the values and the cultural environment our children inherit. That's what God's saying here. When we hate him and prefer something in his place, when we exchange the immortal God, the glory of the immortal God for some corrupt creaturely thing. When we turn from God to serve money, when we turn from God to serve sex, when we turn from God to serve our own personal glory, there is in the wake of that exchange, a cultural environment that is established. And some people grow up in that cultural environment and it becomes a, a, a terrible thing for the, for the child growing up in it. And it may be that even some of you have grown up in a home life where people did not honor God. They worshiped some other God, whether it was an idol physically that they had made or some, some uh, imagination of, of, of some abstract thing that they devoted themselves to. And you know the pain and the misery that comes from living in that kind of an environment. And what you have is, is a choice. You have the choice to, to break free from that. And the difficulties that you've inherited as a result of the cultural environment that you grew up in. And you can turn to serve the living God, exchange the corruptible thing for the incorruptible God. And be the person who breaks a generational curse in your life so that your children grow up in an environment that is completely different than the one that you grew up in. Because not only is there a promise of a curse, but there's the promise of a blessing that far outweighs the curse. Where he says that God will show love to a thousand generations, not three or four, but a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you've grown up in an environment of oppression, of bondage, that is a result of turning away from the living God to pursue idols, but you make the decision that that generational curse ends with you. And the blessing that God promises is going to be upon you and upon your children and upon your children's children for a thousand generations that you're going to determine to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and bring up your children in an atmosphere where they are able to see the blessing and experience the blessing that God longs to bring to the world. Well, you know, as Christians, we want to make the application now of this to the New Testament. There's an amazing turn of events because God understands that it's difficult for us to really grasp who he is as this 
being that exists outside and beyond all creation, that is above all creation, yet interacts with us within creation. And so God has provided a means by which we can communicate with him that makes sense to us. And this was his plan all along. And at the fullness of time, at just the right time, he sent his son into the world. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we're told that Jesus, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. So the thing that we couldn't do with our own hands, which is create an image that is a fitting representation of God, God has done for us by sending His Son into the world who is the exact representation of His being. Paul says to the Colossians that, God, uh, that, that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and He is the image of the living God. Jesus Himself made the statement to His disciples who longed to see the Father somehow. That's, that is a human longing. And Jesus' response was, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And so there's no need for us to create an image of God. God has revealed His image to us in Jesus Christ. There's, there's no way we could ever come to a better understanding of who God is than observing the life that Jesus lived and the life that Jesus gave for the salvation of your soul and mine and for the whole world. And this is so important because as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he, he gets down to the thing that I'm really trying to accomplish in this entire series of lessons on the Ten Commandments. He tells us that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate what it is it to contemplate, to, to behold, to, to dwell upon, to meditate on, to to think on, and he says that we're to contemplate the Lord's glory. And as we do so, we are being transformed into His image. So when we think of the Lord's glory, we think of Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of the glory of God. And so we contemplate Him. That doesn't mean that you go out and find some artist's painting of a picture of Jesus and nobody knows what Jesus actually looked like. That's not the image that he's talking about. But when you see the moral character of Jesus revealed in the New Testament, in His words and in His actions, as you contemplate that, as you meditate upon that, He says what's happening is we're being transformed by that. As we worship and serve Him, we're being changed into His image, the very image of God Himself. Just as we can be corrupted and downgraded by our worship of idols, we can be elevated and changed into the likeness of God as we contemplate and worship and serve Jesus Christ, the image of God, and be changed into His likeness and elevated in our character. And so as we do this, he says, it with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to stop making God in our image. We're, we're told to quit trying to make Him into what we want Him to be and strive to become what He's created us to be in His likeness and image. And we do that as we focus on Jesus Christ and not make Him into who we want Him to be. That's easy. But 
realize we're the ones that need to change and strive to become more like the master in all things, who is the glory of God revealed to us in a way that we can comprehend. Let's conclude our study this evening with a word of prayer. Our great God and Father, we thank you so much once more for your word, for your truth, for what you've shown us about yourself through creation, but help us never to confuse your creation with you who made it. Let us never try to make you into our image, but rather see the image of yourself that you've revealed to us in your son, Jesus. And as we contemplate him, we ask, Father, that you would change us, change our character, make us who you want us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.